Hello and welcome to Poetry, comma, but make it relevant full stop. I'm your host, Isabel Hodgson, and today I have a guest with me who is not going to be reading uh, his own writing, but will be talking about some of his favourite um, poetry. So uh, please welcome Jacob Beach Hodges. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's an honour to be such a highly esteemed show. I know, this is the thing. We're, we're an absolute prestigious uh, institution. I'm scrolling through BBC Sounds. I was surprised I didn't see your name there. It's oh. shocking, honestly, that they haven't contacted yeah. me yet. Uh, I think they're afraid of the revolution, honestly. Is, is That's all it is. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm going to start by asking you, um, how many poems have you brought today and which of them is your favourite? Right, well, I have brought four poems for us today. Nice. I'm not going to tell you my favourite because um, I'm sort of very scared about coming across uh, as exactly who I am, which is a massive Bob Dylan fan to a pretty disgusting degree. (laughs) I've kind of given it away, but I actually would say my favourite is by a contemporary writer called Intiaz Darker. Nice. Okay, so do you want to start um, by reading off the first poem that you've picked um, for us today. Yeah, I will not start with Imtiaz Darker. I will start with one of the most light-hearted poems I've ever read called Mother. Brilliant. Okay, so this is Mother by Gwendolyn Brooks. I'll read you the poem first and I'll tell you a little bit about the um, the poet herself. I'm sure you already know that you're oh. miles above me. Mother, abortions will not let you forget. You remember the children you got that you did not get. The damp small pulps with a little or with no hair. The singers and workers that never handled the air. You will never neglect or beat them or silence or buy with a sweet. You will never wind up the sucking thumb or scuttle off ghosts that come. You will never leave them, controlling your luscious sigh. Return for a snack of them with a gobbling mother eye. I've heard in the voices of the wind the voices of my dim killed children. I have contacted, I have eased my dim dears at the breast they could never suck. I have said, sweets, if I sinned, I seized your luck and your lives from your unfinished reach. If I stole your birth and your names, your straight baby tears and your games, your stilted or lovely loves, your tumults, your marriages, aches and your deaths. If I poison the beginning of your breaths, believe that even in my deliberateness, I was not deliberate. Though why should I whine? Whine that the crime was other than mine. Since anyhow you are dead, or rather, or instead, you were never made. But I am too, I am afraid. Fun. <laughs> Love it. Uh, okay, so talk to me about Gwendolyn Brooks and the poet. Gwendolyn Brooks was born, I think, in 1917. Um, I hope I'm right there. Uh, I have to be right all the time, so I'm like... <laughs> uh, she was born in 1917 in, um, in Topeka. And uh, she moved to Chicago, a really rough area of Chicago when she was quite young, right. called Brownsville. It's not called Brownsville anymore, but that's what it was called. Um, yeah. And uh, she's actually, um, she was a child prodigy in, in in a really surprising way. I mean, you wouldn't think you wouldn't think that uh, a young working class African American woman would be ever given the opportunity to be a young prodigy. Yeah. Yeah. There to, to find her um, talent, but not not in this case. She was. Um, when she was 13, she met Langston Hughes and um, oh, wow. and he gave her praise. Uh, the, actually, um, by the time she released her first 
first book, which she was 14, four years older than, oh younger God. than me. Embarrassing. Yeah. Um, she was, that there were people at Harper Collins trying to get her to, um, to, to, to sign a, a deal with them. So she was highly touted from a very young age and her first, so in 1945, she released her, her first collection of poems called uh, a, street, right. a Street in Bronzeville. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, um, she was pretty, she was very young when she released this, but it, it received acclaim pretty quickly. She, yeah. she was very direct in her poetry. It was very immediate. It was, um, there was no adjective that wasn't needed. There was no, no um, break, line break that wasn't needed. It was, oh. it had a very simple um, rhyming pattern. It was just mostly A-B-A-B. But um, her, her, communi- the, her ability to communicate the um, sort of like, uh, it wasn't at this time vignettes, it was more, it was more wider sort of critique of, and sort of, um, I think the best word to say is celebration of African-American life in Chicago, mm. whilst at the same time critiquing the, uh, the, the, the grip that the white man had had over this community. Yeah. So that, that made her known in the in the um art in the poetry world but it wasn't until 1950 where she released her well her defining work um it's called annie allen right that that actually won her a pulitzer prize for poetry which oh wow utterly unprecedented for a black woman at the time yeah it's crazy how much how much her style changes from a book she wrote four years ago now ali Annie Allen is nothing like a street in Bronzeville. It is, it is super complex vignettes of a um, a young black girl called Annie Allen making it out of Brownsville projects. But it, the the um, the style she takes on it becomes it becomes hugely um, reminiscent of actually sort of uh, neoclassical Western poetry in her. Oh, wow. It's it's so complex. And actually, I was I was reading an, an article on uh because i'm a uni student now it's on j of course you know because that's where i read my articles (laughs) um and they were they were they were saying it's it's very similar in a way uh of of the plato myth of the cave you know myth of the cave yeah 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 yeah, of course so the the characters in in these poems they they um that they they sort of they, they they get their understanding through the people around them, but the character, but the the central uh, narrator can see um, beyond that. Everyone is on a pursuit of truth, but it's only a truth that they know from the people around them. There's no, there's so there's there's no understanding of of what it is to live in the higher echelons of this white society, and mm. it, it it brings on a really sort of tragic, really tragic feel, and. Um, I, I absolutely love Annie Allen. I would recommend it to you as even more than any other poetry book I have. Um, I, well, how how biographical would you say the work is? Well, you know, it's it's funny because every writer does ninety percent of what they do really is biographical, whether they accept. Yeah, it or not. I agree. I, I, I agree with that. It's, it's impossible not to be biographical when you're writing. I think. Yeah. But um, it is it is quite bi- biographical. I think actually, mm. not not not. Annie Allen is a little bit different because it sort of it moves around the character. It's not just focused on her. You see her, her family, her friends, other people on the street, and it, it sort of it caveats into their lives and then builds this fascinating world around them. It's it's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say you know you know no writer could ever be biographical because I mean I I agree. Um, 
but you have like a kind of Robert Browning style outlook on poetry, which is, you know, to assume a voice, to assume a character. There's, um, for the listeners, um, a really great um, article about this by Zadie Smith called The I Who Is Not Me. Um, It's brilliant. Um, I love her essays as well as her books. Um, Her essays are really, really brilliant. And um, I love them because they're not kind of haughty and they're very easy to follow and really enjoyable to read. And what she was talking about was essentially quite a British sense of um, when you're writing a novel and novels particularly. So this wasn't um, necessarily about poetry, but I think it applies in the same way um, that when you kind of write a novel, you you try and get out of yourself. You try and create a character and really try and separate yourself from that character. But the fact is, is that you're only ever writing from your own experience. You only ever have your idea of the world. And to ignore that as an influence uh, and to try and kind of avoid that as an influence can often be disingenuous. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I, I think that's a very interesting idea. And I, I you know, when I don't know um, enough about um, Gwendolyn Brooks, but when you kind of hear about her life and how she grew up and then, the kind of the subject matter of Annie Allen, you kind of point to how biographical is this work? Yeah, I I, I think it is biographical. I think like most writers, I think Gwendolyn Brooks would reject that, but I think she'd be lying to herself. Um, Yeah. I think it's, I think it's so impossible. I, I understand for her though, because she probably spent most of the time writing it, trying to think about these other characters, these other people in her life that she knows little of trying to build this character around them. And then, Every critic will just say it's a biographical tale about her life through Chicago, and maybe that's not what she intends it to be, even if it, that's what yeah. it becomes. So it's it's an interesting yeah. point. Well, it can also be both. I think that that's yeah. the great thing about, um, and I, I I do feel this with poetry in particular is um, I, with with novels um, the interpretation. You know, there is there's a level of interpretation you can take, but with poetry especially, meaning can be so subjective. So open, so open to meaning. Um, yeah, and so I think um, I, I think that you can kind of you can have two meanings existing at the same time without them, you know, being in conflict with each other necessarily. Or, or have anything to do with each other. I think that they, they can be two different points, two different readings that totally work by themselves without any other sort of additional um additional reading to it i think that's that's what poetry can do so well i remember that's i remember it happened to me actually somehow i got interested from poetry for gcse which is a miracle oh wow that's shocking <laughs> i know it was reading ozymandias and every time i read it i would look at it a different way and it, i would have i wouldn't have to think about my other interpretation because this one stood so so um so well formed by itself and that's what poetry can do do for you even if it of course is not the writer's intention Mm. But it, it was, yeah yeah carry on carry on it was it was very interesting actually because um i was reading an interview i was watching an interview of, of neil young who is a very very good lyricist um i would call him a poet was um talking about he was walking down the street and he was watching some and he was so saw a, a young man in a, in a car in chicago mm. listening to his music and and he said that when he was the, the guy who was singing it so loud in his car made neil young realize that 
Well, but when you make art, when you make music, it is no longer yours once you put it out there. That song yeah. that Neil Young made and wrote is totally owned by that man singing in the car. As much as it is Neil Young, it is his art because that is what art does. It's a totally yeah. individual. I mean, absolutely. There's the there's the whole you know Bart Bart's literary theory about the death of the author. Yeah, um, yeah. Which I think is I I love talking about that because I I I think there's a lot, especially when people talk about um, Shakespeare, because Shakespeare is always being interpreted because we all have to learn it at school. So it's someone who can be a cultural reference point for pretty much anyone in the country, which is. Which I'll put it anywhere in Western in Western uh, society, I would say. Oh yeah, yeah, within the UK, you know, not not even in the US. Like it's definitely, and that's the thing. It's a very um, it's a very nationalistic thing. Um, I think I think Shakespeare uh, is, and he's definitely still important in our kind of our our cultural perspective today. And whether or not that's a good thing, you can decide for yourself. But yeah. I, you know, it's a fact, and people will always still you know try and interpret him because he's kind of so widely known in the UK. And the fact is, is because, you know, we, we don't actually have his intention. We don't have any of that. But you, you can put a queer reading on Shakespeare, which is something yeah, that probably would have existed at the time. Exactly. But, You're right. A feminist reading, even, you know, feminism hadn't even been thought of yet. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. It, it works. It absolutely works. Especially in Macbeth, by the way, that's a really interesting feminist reading into Macbeth. I think. Yeah, I, I and I think that uh, a lot of people will say, like, how can you do that when these ideas of you know and these critical ideas didn't even exist? And I'm, I'm kind of thinking the whole point of art is that it lives on, and if you want it to live on, then you need to allow it to be consumed and understood in a way that is relevant. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I mean, actually in, in in not in not in like most old literature, not in race and not in sex, William Shakespeare yeah. is the modern day test. But I think his his narrative structure and his plot lines are so essential to film, so essential yeah. to film, which Absolutely. is which is taken over for, for, uh, books and poems in terms of uh, what is most important in, uh, artistically. He mm. has his, his, his and that that alone, film being created four hundred years after he died is a testament to yeah. how great he is, even if I am furiously bored by some of his work when I'm sitting in in class. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole point is, um, I, I I always say you, you never have to find something interesting. And there are so many, mm. I, I absolutely hate most 18th century literature, but that doesn't mean I can't recognise that very occasionally. I don't hate romantics, okay? I don't mind them, I don't hate them. Um, but I don't like really moralistic stuff. Um, it just, it, oh, I, it bores me. But anyway. Um, yeah. I was about to say, you bore me. I was, such, I was so angry there. I was about to say, you bore me. <laughs> um, well, no, speaking of opinion, um, who, what, what would you say your, your biggest literary influences are? And, and this can be influences on your kind of your life, your opinions about yeah. the world, your personality, your own writing, any of the above. I would say it's very cliche, but very stupid not to not to tell you my biggest influence from the art from the literary world in terms of my worldview. That is always yeah. going to be George Orwell. And it's right. not for me. I just I, I agree with 90 percent of the things he says, which is so rare for anyone. 
it's rare for yeah, me to agree absolutely. with that. So in terms of my worldview, absolutely him. In terms of my literary, what my literary influence, I would probably say um, Henry Miller would be one of them for me. I think that Henry Miller is someone I could probably disagree with in every every single um, standpoint, uh, morally and politically. Right. His writing is, it's sort of, it's in between a novel. His, his writings are in between um, not novel in, in their structure, um, mm -hmm. poetry in, in, in his language, and a stream of conscious essay writing uh in, in in his in his sort of um in his sort of themes and uh mm. he has no plot but it is um most of his stories have absolutely no plot but some of the poetry is 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 so beautiful and what he says about how he feels in 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 his position in the world i can relate to to an, an extortionate degree right so and with with george orwell um how how does it feel to kind of I, I think that recently um in the kind of last I would say five years or so he's become a real figure for the alt-right in quite a strange yeah, way especially because he was, a, he was a socialist um, yeah, um I, hope, I hope they know he went to Spain for three years to volunteer for the social for the communist yeah. you know you're right and that confuse it does confuse me but I feel like the alt-right and just conservatism in general will will latch on to uh, to British figures regardless of their political views. You know, yeah. the fact that he was a white male who was incredibly good at writing and was a big fan of this country means that the old white will 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 idolise him or yeah. class him, even if he dis despises that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's what I find so funny is um, when people read. Uh, 1984 they read it as an anti-communist text and it's anti-authoritarian it, yeah that's the thing it, it, it was very anti-specific regimes but it was it was just as influenced by fascism as it was kind of the wrongdoings of you know certain communist states and to be honest, it's like it's his point basically is regardless of political view, you get that authoritarian and you become full circle. It doesn't matter Absolutely, if his yeah. brother is Hitler or Stalin. It's Hitler or Stalin. They're horrible people. That have, I, I think it's so clear to me when I read it that it's anti-authoritarian, and, and, yeah. and it, it makes it very clear that it's it's not um not a political in that sense it's not on the it's not on the um on the uh on the typical axis of politics it's on the um absolutely the yeah well yeah. if you're talking about political compass which i mean not everyone agrees um with and not everyone thinks is an accurate way of measuring political um he's a liberal kind of, he's yeah he's he measures kind of vertically rather than horizontally so it's authoritarian yeah, libertarian rather than um kind of left to right um, I agree, actually, and I think if you if you read Homage to Catalonia, which is one yeah. of the best novels I've ever read, it's, it's obviously his time fighting in Spain. Yeah, yeah. He's disillusioned with the Communist Party because he sees too much a similarity in 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 their politics at the, at the higher echelons of the of the party as he does with the Franco regime. Absolutely. And actually, it was a big. I think um, his journeys to Spain were a really big influence in him moving away from the left and right and moving to the up and down. I think yes. it's a big influence on his life, and it just makes me laugh that literally his worst, his worst sort of person, I loves him, and I yeah. him. 
I, yeah, I, it just confuses me. Um, I think I think he's um, he's also a, a great another example of someone who's a brilliant novelist, but also a great essayist. Oh, he's um, the best orator I've ever ever read. Yeah. I every in most of my lectures when I started university, when they kind of um, were explaining, you know, how to write a good essay, um, every single one of them asked me to read. Orwell's like you know no matter the subject wasn't you know for classics and um, yeah it would be um it would be they'll ask me to read the you know Orwell's you know I can't remember the notes on nationalism or it's one about the whale right I yeah yeah I think it's it's something hold on I'll find it for you right now because we're supposed to be professionals yeah yeah we should uh we should be quoting (laughs) inside the whale it's iconic I think that's what it is inside the whale yes um writing. Or, no i think it wasn't it wasn't actually that one it was um oh yeah why i write oh why i write that's also brilliant and, and politics in the english language was again is a great example of if you use loads of complicated words you don't just sound clever um, okay, right. sound I, don't know, I don't know what your view is he but i'm gonna mm. tell you something on my first session of poetry you couldn't have put it better. That's exactly what happened. I think people came into poetry pretty scared about it. Um, oh, yeah. Seminar. And they, um, some of the messages that I saw in the group chat, like, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a, if you put the, if you put it in plain English, your point, it would be a very valid point. But it's a simple point. And for some reason, you, you entangle it with the most pointlessly complicated words. Your point is no less smart. You only seem like, like you have. Yeah total grasp on what you're saying so it's you're very much right and George Orwell is very much right on that yeah and I think I think it's interesting because that's why I mean the whole point of um this radio show is to recontextualize poetry and make people realize that actually it's something that should still be relevant and I think is you know becoming more relevant in some ways because people are realizing that it actually doesn't have to be an academic thing it's just another form of art and um one thing that I think scares people off is all of the ridiculous kind of terminology and posturing of, oh, yeah. I know this really niche poet who does this and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, actually, it's fine to just like children's poets like Spike Milligan because they're, you Legend. know. Legends. Legends. And in no way less kind of valuable than. Absolutely. really posh, you know. I don't know. That's I'm my. Not, I, I am. I am. I am a. I am too much of a snob, which is definitely my something that I actually get annoyed about myself. But one of my favourite novelists still to this day is Roald Dahl. I think he's yeah. so beautiful with what he says and the, and the characters he builds. And yes, he's a children's novelist, but it makes him no no less a genius, in my opinion. No, I completely agree. I, uh, I, I 100% am on the same page with you. Um, so next, what I'd like you to do is read the, the second poem that you've brought for me today. Um, and we'll start to discuss that one. Um, my next poem is Tangled Up in Blue by Bob Dylan. It's my favourite lyrics from him. I think it's some of the best contemporary poetry written. It's my, some of my favourite poetry ever written. So um, Tangled Up in Blue is uh, is the story of um, Bob Dylan and uh, his wife. It's He put it pretty brilliantly when he said it took him 30 minutes to write and 12 years to live. Um, it, it goes through basically his entire life um and moving on to different parts of it 
throwing throwing time and space around, but it always focuses back at the end of every verse. It always focuses back uh, onto his wife. Yeah. Um, so in this verse, uh, he's just met her. We don't know if it's for the first time or if he's met her again. Um, but it's it's actually references poetry, and so I think it's very relevant. Okay. She lit a burner on the stove and offered me a pipe. I thought you'd never say hello, she said. You look like the silent type. Then she opened up a book of poems and handed it to me, written by an Italian poet from the 13th century. And every one of them words rang true and glowed like burning coal, pouring off of every page like it was written in my soul, from me to you, tangled up in blue. That's brilliant, isn't it? It, it oh. is brilliant. Every one of them words rang true and glowed like burning coal, pouring off every page like it was written in my soul. I think that's just some of the best poetry I'll ever I'll ever read. I think um, it is with Bob Dylan compared to a lot of poets. It is a very simple um, rhyming structure because yeah. it, has, it has to go along with a with a, a song behind. But I don't think it actually takes away from what he's saying at all. No, I agree. Um, um, I, I no, think. Well, it's so important to acknowledge that the history of poetry has always been entangled up in music and having... the all the way back to the ballads of the, the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. And then and then even before that, Homer would have been performed with a lyre. Um, you know, we would you would have never read any Greek, ancient Greek poetry. It would have always been performed with music, always with music. Yeah. I didn't know that. Actually. That's that's very interesting. Yeah, and I think that, and again, that recontextualizes it. Where I think, uh, especially someone like a Carla talks uh, brilliantly on this. So if you are interested in kind of the intersection between music and poetry, definitely look up a Carla's uh, videos about this. Um, he uh, basically talks about because he is also really interested in um, the Odyssey and kind of Homer, and he was saying that um, for him that that's what made him realize that rap was true poetry and you know you shouldn't have had to have some other source legitimize that for you absolutely, but, absolutely. but um he's like oh no actually me rapping to a beat and like you know a, some background music is is what homer was doing it's just that <laughs> The sound was doing as well. Bob Dylan was rapping. He was the first person to really rap on pop music, and I yeah. think it's it's all got to, it's all entangled with um, institutional racism for the fact that we don't consider even consider in our in our um, in uh, uh, rap music as poetry. I mean, it's, some of it mm. is just so clever, and um, oh, I think it That's is. Why it's so refreshing when Kendrick Lamar did win the Pulitzer Prize because. It was 100% honestly deserved, and I think people said that it was a, it was a, oh, then you know, it was a woke decision, and they were just trying to kind of posture stuff. And I was just thinking, how can you say that? You know, the whole point of poetry is meant to push boundaries, and this is, you know, one of the, you know, most groundbreaking poets of our time, and you know, people reason to slate that. It is embarrassing for for me as an English scholar that Bob Dylan won. The, is the only person to win, only musician to win the the literature uh, Nobel Prize, and the fact that he won it so late, he should have been awarded it in the eighties, twenty years after everyone knew how much of a genius he was. I, I think yeah. that I'm happy he's got it as well, but I know that there there are there are lingu- linguists in the rap world and in the the pop world in general that are utterly bewilderingly good, and they will never be recognised by the literary canon because of prejudice towards popular music. As if, as if their, their first influences weren't, as you said, Homer 
playing, singing, basically rapping his 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 poems. Yeah. With someone oh, rapping his poems. So I think I think you're I think you're you're spot on with what you said. And and if I actually go back to Tangled Up in Blue, because um, mm, yeah, please, please. One of my favourite things about this poem is that he 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 plays with time and space as if he controls it. It's something that I think is so hard to do. The first two verses are centered around um when they first met um and and even then they're confusing because the first verse is is in the first person when Bob Dylan is waking up with his wife and then the second one is before that when he when he was describing how they first met and then it goes into and then by the third verse he's going into the present day alone having left her and um i think it's absolutely brilliant how how he controls his structure like that i think it's the hardest thing for me to do as a writer i have no ability to control structure in that way i don't know if you agree no but i i think that um not it's not just about um well controlling structure this is the thing is that sometimes people say oh well the words my ideas and my my words flow out flow out better when I do actually conform to a structure because that's what I need yeah. in order. Like I need, um, I need some kind of restriction in order to actually challenge the words that I'm using, which I think is uh, a really, really fascinating idea. It, it is. That I, I find structure incredibly difficult and something that kind of scares me because I want to get right. But, um, you know, what is right? How can you say <laughs> something is right or wrong? Yeah. Yeah, and, and um, there's there's a there's a little bit further down where they're now in the present day again. Yeah. Uh, actually, they're in the past about where they first lived together, and um, it's very simple four lines, but I I absolutely loved them. Mm. I lived with them on Montague Street in a basement down the stairs. There was music in the cafes at night and revolution in the air. I think it perfectly describes the feeling of. Of of setting setting out alone by yourself with someone you love or someone you know, and being totally alone but totally ready for it. I think, I think, yeah, this is so well. I think, <laughs> yeah, I have so many examples of him doing that as well. As you can see, I'm fanboying like crazy, and I, I'm, my cheeks are going all red because I'm thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and what would you say is the kind of the 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 uh, the line a, a line in the song that speaks to you the most what what really pulls on your heartstrings um i would say that uh so that they haven't broken up and having divorced he was now he's now um he's now alone and it's verse seven that speaks to me mm. um so now i'm going back again i've got to get to her somehow all the people we used to know they're an illusion to me now some are mathematicians, some are doctors' wives, don't know how it all got started, I don't know what they're doing with their lives. But me, I'm still on the road, heading for another joint. We always did feel the same, we just sailed it from a different point of view, tangled up in blue. Wow. That's, we, we always did feel the same, we just sell it from a different point of view, I think is pretty much two lines that can define life itself, and that's so yeah. hard. I think it's, um, he he's such a unique talent in the fact that he wrote his lyrics so quickly and there's a really famous story of um Leonard Cohen who's also a brilliant uh, music brilliant. poet um and they were discussing um you know their kind of their work in Paris and um Leonard Cohen or I think it was Bob Dylan asked him oh I loved Hallelujah how long did it take you to write that um 
and kind of was Leonard Cohen tried to play it cool and said, oh, a couple of years. Um, it took him, it took when, him years to write Hallelujah. It took him nearly a decade. Seven or, you know, I think his son said it was seven. Some people thought it was 12. Basically, it took him a very long time. And he was, yeah. like, he was like, oh, it took me, you know, like two years or so. And then uh, he said, oh, I loved um, Like a Woman by, you know, he said this to Bob Dylan. Beautiful. Said, oh, how, long, how long did it take you to write Like a Woman? I love it. And uh, Bob Dylan said 15 minutes. It is what it's like with Bob Dylan. And that is the, the crazy thing about it. He's he's so... Sometimes I think... Um, I think there was a little period in the very late 60s where he became sort of disenvisioned. And although he could still write very quickly, the, yeah. the, the same feeling of being alive was not there. And so his yeah. poetry lags. But then yeah. it, he picks it up again during his divorce, which is ironic because often during the most tumultuous and the worst moment of your life, you are at your very much most creative. Yeah. Which is, is sad, but it is so often true and yeah. it was the, it was the same here with bob dylan he wrote he, after the, the year after he wrote this he then wrote a 10 minute basically a ballad a 10 minute ballad about reuben hurricane carter who was a uh, tipped to be a heavyweight champion and it, it's a story about how he's been wrongly accused of murder and that again is so broad it it, it captures moments within a, a, a large timeline so effortlessly without without lagging on an individual moment and it's it's so sad at the same time. I mean, yeah. uh, so it's crazy how he had this this unrelenting ability to write so quickly. But the problem is, when he was writing bad stuff, he was also writing it very quickly. So it's a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. Oh, I mean, he he is he is just amazing, though. Um, I am unfortunately I'm not a massive fan of um his music and that's not to say that i don't think it's genuinely brilliant um but it's just it's just not my thing i think i love weirdly and um, quite perversely i do enjoy reading his lyrics as you would read kind of paper poetry which um you can absolutely tear me to shreds for um but i think that that's that <laughs> thing exactly um but i love i love that um how much of his work still resonates with people now and it's had just such a lasting impact on people's artistic mm. views of the world I, I mean obviously he has a very big lasting impact but i mean in the scale, scale of in the, the, the timeline of poetry he's had none you know because of just of how like think about homer you know mm. thousands of years of influence it's like well, yeah. you're right he still made he still is the perennial songwriter even even now yeah and um, i i agree i think that's testimony to his ability i love yeah. Dylan always well oh good i'm glad that i'm glad that uh i'm glad that we've had this fanboy moment yes <laughs> unfortunately he's a horrible stuck-up snotty old man which is a shame but yeah. uh, i don't care i don't know him as a person apparently so. but the thing is is that like oh, when you are this is right. I have a very controversial opinion when it comes okay. to Shoot. celebrities and artists. Is when you are that good, you tend to be a bit of a, a mean person. Um, Leonard Cohen, for example. <laughs> Leonard Cohen, another example of someone who was probably awful to deal with in real life. 
Um, generally, artists, I think, had really grumpy, cruel temperaments um, because they're quite angry at the world, and that's why they produce good art. But um, it you're absolutely right. Um, Picasso apparently was undealable, unmanageable. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised. Um, that that's the reason why you know when when people say like, oh my difficult, you know, when people talk about difficult children, they say, oh no, it's just an artistic temperament, like. On one level, that's actually fairly accurate because artists do sometimes just behave like children. Um, Absolutely. But, okay, so speaking of um, things we don't like, um, I'm going to ask you, I like to ask all of my um, interviewees this question, what poetry don't you like? Where to begin? (laughs) Um, I think, which is, I would say this... I'm surprised about how popular he is with with within young poets, mm. but because I I always found him to be super bland and super boring. I think you I know you like this person, Ooh. but I'm not sure. Go go go! Fire away. I really am bored to shreds with Ted Hughes. Right, I have mixed opinions about Ted Hughes, but you go first, and we'll talk. So. Unlike Ozymandias, I first read Ted Hughes. Sorry, like Ozymandias, I first read Ted Hughes' GCSE. Unlike him, I, f- I was so bored. Yeah. I was so bored by A Storm on the Island, one of his most famous poems. But I've, I've read a little bit more as well. And I, I don't know. I think there's something that it's sort of a, a mixture because in one time, I understand his language. Is, he uses language very well mm. and he can, he can conjure very nice images. But I, I think beyond that, I don't I don't have a personal resonance with any of his poetry that I've ever I've ever read. Um now obviously that may be because I'm come from a very different cultural cultural background to him. Yeah. But even but there are so many examples of people who I do have a very different life life compared to like for example Intias Darko who I have nothing in relevant relevance with her. Mm. But yet her poetry strikes me immediately whereas with Ted Hughes I just I just I understand his language. He uses language very well, but I, I have no interest in what he talks about. Mm, you, it's a simple... you don't have to. The thing is, is that uh, I always say this: you, you don't have to, you know, to appreciate something to appreciate that it's good. You don't have to like it. Um, and when you dislike something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you think that it's terribly, you know, written or done. I with Ted Hughes, um, I never really liked his um, his the poetry that was basically just written by him. And you'll understand what I mean in a minute. When basically the only Ted Hughes I've ever enjoyed was his translation of Tales from Ovid. Um, okay. Obviously written by Ovid originally. His translation is fantastic. Um, because, I mean, I, I don't, I can't read Latin. I can only ever read translations of Latin. And it was really interesting to read kind of a generic um, translation that you might get kind of, um, I studied a small bit of Ovid. I didn't study tales from Ovid. I I studied um, not metamorphoses either. Um, I studied Ars Anatoria. And I only ever studied like a very bland word for word translation. But what Ted Hughes does is actually really capture this very playful, boyish spirit of Ovid. Um, he was he was really cheeky, and it doesn't necessarily come across when you. It kind of does when you read um, 
when you read the actual like kind of word for word translation but when you read Ted Hughes's version of it you actually really understand what the tone would have been like um yeah. it's really really good fun um but I've never liked any of his other poetry so I don't know how much yeah. I actually like him um, rather than like I was gonna say I was gonna say I was gonna make a joke at first say well basically what I'm hearing <laughs> is that you like the work he hasn't done yes but that actually is unfair because I think that uh translators do not get enough um, respect yeah i'm gonna talk out for a second with literature my two of my my favorite my favorite two translators which is my my just dream life is um a husband and wife called richard pervier and larissa Vola, volokovsky right. um they do they are a married couple who are i think both one of them are nobel laureates i don't oh, know wow. um but um, they uh, they basically just sit at their their home in America, and they've translated as a husband and wife. They've translated um, all of Dostoevsky's um, major works, a lot of um, Tolstoy's major works. But my favorite book of all time, which is *The Master of Margarita* by Mikhail Bulgakov, they've also translated, and they do such a good job of it. They bring they bring it to life, even in their introductions. You know, you know that your translator is good when you're in falling in love with the tra- with the introduction you know yeah absolutely um, I, I think they have they have got to get a lot of credit yeah that's the thing and, and that's why i think i mean Seamus Heaney is a great example of a poet who's also a translator um and, i i don't hate him i don't i don't love him i think he's a good poet i i, I don't have any particular connection to him but i do think he's fairly good um but he did Beowulf and um, won millions of prizes for it because everyone thought it was the best thing to happen since life bread. Um, and, Beowulf though, so. Oh, I couldn't read Beowulf. It's a oh. it's a no from me, dog. It's um, no from me. It's like I, I it's bad. I forget the name of the poet, but he's very famous. Sort of just in just before Shakespeare, he he um oh John Donne. <laughs> Please no. no. You do not like John Donne. No, I do not like John Donne oh, that much. Goodness. I'm um, sorry. I loved I love the flea though. The flea by um it's interesting, but it just it's it, it so just funny. Funny. Oh, see this is the thing. You're allowed to you're allowed to not like stuff. Um I'm not coming back on this on this <laughs> thing again. No. <laughs> I just want to have a whole episode where we just talk about stuff that we hate. Um I actually, I do know. In fact, I'll I'll con- I'll do that right now. I'll continue. That's all I do. <laughs> Please, yeah, give, me, give me another poet that you don't like. Okay, where do I know? <laughs> I was saying to you earlier. I was saying if if any one of your your um former guests have ever said Emily Dickinson, I will get very angry. Because no, we haven't she, had that yet. Luckily, she um, is such a genius. I just stop recording. Not let the episode air. No, I mean actually, come to think of it, romantic poets. I I do like Shelley, and I. I quite like Byron, but Wordsworth, it's a no from me. I I said this as well. Well, I mean, the last episode with uh, Lauren Gallagher, shout out to Lauren. Um, Hello, what, Lauren. <laughs> she spent the, the, her whole um, her whole point about which poet she hated, basically saying, "Please stop writing about nature. I don't care enough." <laughs> um, I get it. You like to you like to have sex. Smoke opium and talk about nature, but I don't. It's a no. <laughs> I don't smoke opium. I can't relate. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we, this, I mean, 
we've had very, very mixed reviews on the romantics um, so far, this uh, this series of poetry, but make it relevant. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how the others go. I might have to ask every guest this now, because it always yeah, ends up... I think you have to, yeah, that's very interesting, because there are some romantic poets that I adore, and um, I think... Ozymandias might be my favourite poem of all time, which is really, oh, really? Really, really basic. But I think that I think that um, maybe it's not my favourite, but it's the most influential poet po- uh, poem in my interest in literature in general. I think that no other poem, along with yeah, no other poem struck me like uh, Ozymandias did when I first read it. So I've got to give the Romantics that. Oh, that's wonderful, though. I like. I mean, you'll you'll get well. We'll get to a question at the end of the episode, or we'll talk more about your favourite poem of all time. Okay, great. But um, now I'm going to ask you to read your next uh, your next poem that you brought for me. Okay, it is by Imtiaz Darker, and I'll give you a little bit of background first. Imtiaz Darker was a um, was Pakistan native, but um, she lived in both India and Britain. Um, oh. So mm-hmm. she she's very very influenced by her childhood, which I think I think is quite patchy right. for her, which I think is why it's so influential. Um, it's right. um, it's all very it's all it's all very hard hard on on the uh, on the reader because she had a very difficult right. um, difficult life, um, including her immigration. But um, what's really interesting is she uses my favorite book of hers is Postcards from God, where she she is in, a lot of it. She's in the lens, she's in the perspective of God, looking down on a world that is so stricken by wow. fundamentalism and hatred and uh, violence. And I will read you one of my favorite poems from it if I can find it. I think it's called Perda Two. Um, here we go. The call breaks its back across the tenements, Allah Akbar. Your mind throws back black shadows on marble cooled by centuries of dead. A familiar script racks the walls, the pages of the Quran turn smooth as old bones in your prodigal hands. In the tin box of your memory, a coin of comfort rattles against the strangers of a foreign land. Years of sun were concentrated into Malavi's fat dark finger, hustling across the page, nudging words into your head, words unsoiled by sense, pure rhyme on the tongue. The body rocked in time with 20 others was lulled into thinking it had found a home. It's very short. It's absolutely beautiful. It's about yeah. the dangers of fundamentalism, which is probably my one of my most passionate um, political beliefs is the danger of religious fundamentalism. But it's a family show, so I'm not going to go into it that, that hard. Um, <laughs> what, she, what she does talk about, though, is that it's it's the sadness that the um the narrator which i th- i i look at as god um seeing people mm. using um these these at its core brilliant ideas and and turning them into hatred and violence to a point where allah akbar which is a praise a praise for allah which is at its core a beautiful thing has such mm. a resonance with violence and aggression certainly in the west and not so much in in the middle east where they still use it in in everyday everyday language but she, but it, it is absolutely right. Al Akbar does not mean anything horrible at all. It means I think it's praise God or something very similar to that, and um, and it's mm. it's how it's taken on such a dirty meaning in the West, and it's, it's how sad it is. And I think it's absolutely beautiful. I really do. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a fantastic poem. I'm so glad that you've uh, 
brought it on today because I hadn't heard of her before, but um, I will certainly be researching her after this episode, um, which I hope that most of our listeners do. Mm, Um, It's so worth just looking into all of these poets. Um, So just because we're approaching um, the end of the episode, uh, which I'm aware of, I like to ask all of my interviewees this question, which is, if aliens invaded the Earth tomorrow with the purpose to wipe all of uh, human culture off of the face of the Earth, and you were invited by your <laughs> friend at NASA to, uh, to escape with one poem, with one poem, um, which poem would you be That's taking? That's a great question. That is a great question. I do need to think about that. Um, I've always loved uh, the song Jerusalem by William Blake. Not not a great great poem, wow. but not for yeah. what what I love about it especially is not for what people thought it was. They they took it on as a national hymn of patriotism and empire when it was released, but it's actually a scathing yeah. criticism that's far too clever for the British to um to grasp. So I I love it for its context, yeah. but I wouldn't say it's my favourite. <sighs> I would have to say, I'd have to say it's Ozymandias. I mean, I just can't think of anything that, that struck me in terms of poetry as as well as, as Ozymandias. The, um, I, hold on, I'm going to ask you, what, what do you think about Ozymandias? Um, well, this is, this is a good question because oh. um, I never studied it at GCSE. I never, the first time I came into contact with Percy Shelley was actually through Mary Shelley. Yeah, understand. Uh, She's genius. Yeah, I'm completely in love with her too. Um, and so I hadn't really had much. I've never been formally taught the Romantics, except for very, very briefly at university. Um, and even then, you know, it's pretty much just Keats. Um, just Keats. So I've only ever, <laughs> I've only ever re- like read the Romantics kind of on my own time, which means that I only really have my own opinion uh, yeah. of them. And um, it was only till very recently that I had to tutor um, someone about Ozymandias and what I thought it actually meant that I realised um, how I did respond to it. And I think that I really, I really loved um, the idea of kind of, I found it very comforting. I think that for a lot of people, the poem is haunting. So it's a haunting Yeah, I think it's a... I, I find it incredibly comforting that um, the reality is, is at the end of it all, nature will always come back. Nature will always survive, you know, exactly. especially it's got a new relevance with the environmental crisis, which I think is why so many young people resonate with the romantics is because of their new relevance with the environmental environment. crisis. Absolutely. Um, so, I I I actually I totally agree. I think I'm the only person I know that it's it's so warming to me knowing that humans are not going to live beyond nature. I I, I love this horrible, um, uh, violent and um, oppressive king called Ozymandias, totally obsessed with himself, does everything he can do to to remain forever known as the great king. But all this all that all that's seen is is his is is how small he is on compared to the how the lonely level sands just stretch far away forever 
And I, I think that that, that, make, that helps me go to sleep at night, knowing that humans will not still have the last I word. I 100% agree. And I think, I think that if you are if you are made uncomfortable by this poem, you should reflect your worldview um, and why it makes you uncomfortable that nature will ultimately surpass yeah. us every single time. Um, there's that brilliant quote who I always forget, I always forget who it's by, which is, art should comfort the disturbed, <laughs> disturb the comfortable. And I think that that's absolutely true. And I think that this is a great example of that because despite the fact that Percy Shelley was not necessarily um, a very uncomfortable person, I'm, you know, not under the, you, I know that he uh, was a fairly privileged fellow. Um, but well, I, yeah, I think that at the same time, his perspective, his fear of the Industrial Revolution is something that has affected us all today. Um, I think that, I think his, his fears were, Absolutely mm, warranted. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Right now, yeah, can't you? I, I 100% agree. Um, I, I think I think the romantics, the thing with the romantics is that a lot of what they're saying is absolutely correct. I love the idea to connect with nature, but do it in a few less syllables. <laughs> and that's why I like, and that's why I like Ozymandias because it's incredibly to the point, unlike most romantic poetry I find. You, yeah. Like um, William Wordsworth has a, has a, has a, has a work of poetry called The Prelude, which is the intro or the beginning, that spans his whole life and takes me a whole lifetime to read, and that's The oh. Prelude. That's what they're like, you know? It's just, uh, it's exhausting. Um, but, um, okay, so last question before um, we kind of start to wrap up. I wanted just to ask, um, why are the poems that you've brought relevant today and what what's unique about their perspective to you why do you think that they they've resonated with you so much well it's very interesting because in, in in all of all of the poems that i mentioned today i have i have no i have no um nothing i can personally mm. relate to in in the most in the most obvious sense so within tia's darker i am i am not a multiple time mm. immigrant to two different countries uh, or i'm not also a um non-white um woman mm. as well which makes which means that we have so little yeah. in common but i think although it's not it's not it's not um the same it is i can't relate to it on that level i i can it's, it's not i'm not blind i see this yeah. in the world and and i th- i think that um your environment has so much affects you in such a large way and although i personally am not any of the things i just said I know so many people. I see it every day, and and you can feel you can feel the power of of her words um, within w- without even being able to relate to them. And I, I think that it's actually out of all three of them, I think it's the most relevant to today because there is a huge issue with racism still. There's a huge issue with immigration mm, yeah. still, and she captures its sadness more than anything so well. So it's the sadness that I, I I love about MTS Darker, which is fun. Um, with uh, with um, with Tangled Up in Blue, uh, I think it's it's relevant um, in the way that uh, it's it, it can cap it captures the feeling that everyone gets, which is the feeling of love, even if it's scientifically proven to be fake. It um, it captures the feeling so brilliantly and so to such an overwhelming extent that it, it can make me cry which nothing else can do really. yeah. so f- for that reason 
and then for um for Gwendolyn Brooks because I think that I think it's relevant now. Well, I mean, I think it, it, it tackles racism. So, frankly, it's very relevant in in, in that yeah. sense. But I also think her writing is so clever. How how she fuses this neoclassical Western poetry techniques, these hugely long, complex, epic poems she starts writing in in in, right. um, yeah. in Annie Allen, and how she fuses that with um, a very African American centered viewpoint and very culturally african-american right. so it's those that fusion i think is incredibly relevant to um to literature today so yeah yeah thank you so so much for all all of these poems that you've introduced to me um and uh massive thank you for coming on the show this is going to be the conclusion of our episode oh man yeah tragic times um, but no thank you again for coming on izzy thank you so much for having me on Oh, brilliant. I'm I'm so glad. Um okay. all right, so see you next week to all of our listeners. Um have a good Sunday.